Okay, so I uh, have here with me uh, the distinguished economist uh, from the University of Chicago, John List, and the chief economist at um, Lyft, and the author of a new book, The Voltage Effect, How to Make Good Ideas Great and Great Ideas Scale. Thank you, Dr. List, for uh, meeting with me. And Scott, it's great to see you, and please call me John. I feel really old when you call me doctor. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's neat. So uh, I had just some questions. I didn't want to take up a ton of your time. I know you're super busy. Um, I just kind of wanted to hear a little bit about your background, and I just have some, uh, as well as a little bit about the book. Um, sure. But uh, is it okay if I just kind of walk you through the questions that I have? And I, I want this to be informal, but I just thought. Yeah, yeah, of course. So I was kind of. I was kind of curious about your start. Um, how did you end up at the University of Wyoming? And were you originally interested in the kinds of topics that they're well known for, like environmental? Or is there a different story? Yeah, it's a good question. So if I turn back the page a little bit to how I got to University of Wisconsin at Stevens Point, that's a story that, you know, I went to, to college to play golf. And I wanted to be a I wanted to be a golf professional, so that dream failed quickly because I wasn't any good at golf, or at least good enough to to play wow. in the pros. Yeah. So I, I moved to my other passion, which was economics. So I was an econ undergrad, and back then, you know, I did well, and I did well in the GRE and and all of that. I was a math math guy and econ guy as an undergrad and the the level of advising was different back then so it was pushed to they asked me what I was interested in and it was two things one was environmental and resource economics uh -huh. and the other one was testing theory in the field let's say because as an undergrad I was going to baseball card shows on weekends and doing various things that were really like the early days of my field experimentation. Mm -hmm. So if you look up going to the field to generate data, you're going to have zero departments back then. This is 1991. Mm -hmm. And then when you look at environmental and resource economics at the time, I think Yale School of Forestry was really good. Mm. Um, Berkeley Ag Econ was good. Yeah. Iowa State Ag Econ, Maryland Ag Econ, and then Mar uh, University of Wyoming's Econ Department. So uh, out of no particular reason, I said, you know, I'd rather get an Econ PhD than an Ag Econ PhD. So we ended up targeting University of Wyoming. Yeah. And yeah. Um, that's exactly what I got is when I arrived there, there were some great minds working on environmental and resource economics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did it ever shift while you were in the program? Because I don't really notice. I, I don't really notice as much. I mean, your vita is so massive, but it seems like the the bulk of it has moved away from environmental. Was yeah, it yeah. where it wasn't though? Oh, so it didn't switch in grad school. So my early field experiments in the early '90s were on environmental and resource issues. So they were on contingent valuation. Oh, sure. Um, and they were on using field experiments to understand elicitation mechanisms. Oh, the part didn't change. And when you look at, say, my 2004 QJE paper was on willingness to accept willingness to pay differences, which really mm -hmm. stems from my interest in environmental and resource economics. So. Mm -hmm. That, that really didn't start to wane, I would say, until maybe the early 2000s where I became, um, let's say, much more broadly interested in using the world as my lab to test basic economic theories and to explore social issues that were beyond yeah. environmental and resource. But that, that took some time, I think, to, to develop. Yeah, I can see it. that's boy. Now that you say that, that's such a clear line between contingent valuation and that work that I do think about you doing. Oh, yeah. I, I never, I never really thought about that. Um, and Scott, I'm glad you brought that up because what's really interesting is it's almost like we're going back to the future. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. today you you see a lot of major journals publishing surveys yeah. and, and results from surveys. Right. And it, it's really interesting because as environmental resource economists, you know, when you look back at uh, Gardner Brown and Hammock's work in 1973, we've done a lot in that area as environmental resource, and it's almost like it's been forgotten. Yeah. Which is sort of interesting. And and I hope that that old literature um has a has a seat at today's table, right. which is using survey-based approaches to look at things like inequality or beliefs about um, various aspects of taxation or government. And I think we've learned a lot, and I hope we don't discard everything we've learned yeah. in CV. Yeah, 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 yeah. I totally agree. I totally agree. Um, uh, I think that, you know, a lot of the developments, the stuff that I've been very interested in in causal inference has been really nice, And but at the same time, it's just one piece of science, and science is, a, you know, a, pr- a giant, you know, mosaic of a lot of different things. Uh, but an important piece, causal inference. important piece, absolutely. I'm talking, important to the, piece. talking to the father of the field experimentation. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Thank you. You, you know, uh, I wanted to show you something real quick because, well, first I wanted to say, I have two things I wanted to say. Your productivity is is just astonishing, and uh, I I know you know that, obviously, but I don't know if everybody is quite knowledgeable that it's 65,000 citations, and you're, you know, still a a young person. uh, we both are, our our hair is different than it was. Mine's very gray. Yours is grayer and mine's gone. But uh, <laughs> but uh, half of those citations are in the last five years. It, it, it's really interesting the profile of the what I think of as like a a right tail producer of scientific literature and scientific output is the way it you know it can either be like a steady level. Actually, I don't even see that very much. It, it's more of this like rising and the the uh, when you really dig into the the way the the way in which a rising right tail producer is it it's interesting because it just it's seminal work that continues to grow and then it's also this kind of continual sort of you know big impact and I, before i get into that i just wanted to say do you think that anybody as a, when you were a kid like your parents or your teachers or like your coach or anything w- would they have known would they have noticed the traits that are probably correlated with whatever it is that makes you a right tail producer i mean it's like i know you're not publishing papers when you're a kid but there's got to be something that's like associated with whatever it is that makes you like that yeah it's a good, it's a good question so um scott the way i was raised is you have to imagine a house that until fifth grade, I can't remember a book being in our house. Mm. And then fifth grade happened, and there was a traveling salesperson oh. who was selling encyclopedias. God, like our, that is the best <laughs> stuff. We had those too. That was like so great. It was. It changed my world. I yeah, mean, I got the is. I got the M, and then the N, and then <laughs> I learned so much. Yeah. So, but but to be fair, it was a very loving household, and it mm. was a uh, a pretty strict Catholic upbringing. Mm. So I was mostly taught by nuns, and uh-huh. nuns are great, but they tend not to be great teachers. Mm. My aunt is a nun. Mm. Um, so we we stressed athletics, and we stressed non let's say non-cog skills like executive function skills you keep your word you're loyal um i think the only so look school is always really easy and i was always bored out of my mind um and i would get i would maybe not try as hard and get um get in trouble from teachers let's put it that way and have to sit in the hall because it was so mind-numbingly boring um because it was all pretty obvious and then I would just act up in class and then so I would be rewarded based on athleticism Mm. and um let's say not getting in trouble and then I think the one trait that probably stood out is is being competitive Mm. and but it was never competitive with other people it was always competitive with self right and 
making sure that I never left anything on the table. Right. Uh, with anything. So, you know, I'm, I'm only 5'10", but I was a pretty good basketball player in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, I got a golf scholarship and that's how I got to go to go play golf in college. So it was, if there was any trait early on that would have been a signal, it would have been this guy never quits in right. terms of um, the, the perseverance and getting the most out of himself. I yeah. don't know how you can see that in a kid, but yeah. that would have yeah. been it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, golf, I mean, I know golf is a team sport and you're you're competitive and your team is winning, but it, it seems like it's like track or like marathon running and stuff in that uh, it's this constant, you know, battle against your own self out there. Or, you no, know, no, that's right. I think like that's that. a good point. Yeah, yeah, golf is a team sport. You are right, but it's also very individual team sport, a bit yeah. like baseball when you're up to bat. These days, I don't hit behind people anymore. They swing from the heels and try to have their own stats. With golf, it's you and the course. Right. And that's what I always like is that it competing against another human in zero-sum games, I, I don't really get off on that. But I really like competing against nature and myself and my past self and how good my future self can be. And that's golf. Right. And and then golf is, is part strategy mm-hmm. and, and part – um, how much effort are you going to put in yeah. to be the best player you can be? Of course, there's some God-given talent. And that's what I didn't have enough of, frankly, yeah. to, to make any money. Mm-hmm. But I did get the most out of myself. There's right. no doubt about right. that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, your colleague, David Galenson, he's really interesting. He's got that uh, book on uh, the different kinds of creativity, creativity the, yeah. the, the the Jackson Pollocks and the Andy Warhols, you know, to a – to a, not, a person that doesn't appreciate art, you, they look, they kind of think, they kind of clump them together because it's sort of a, you know, they're both abstract or whatever. But one is, uh, you know, has this burst of genius as a young person and maybe kind of like slopes a little bit down and their peak work. He's got that auction data. Where, but And then it's like the Jackson Pollock, a lot of people don't know, is the intense returns to experience. What, what do you think... Which of those two do you feel like is a better description of the kind of creativity that you have? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm an empiricist, kind of in his the way he thinks about it. That's right. Um, I think that the work that I do and and tend to do is the sense that I don't envision it being a quick flash and then I'm gone and then that's, that's my piece of art that um that ends up being valuable long after i'm gone mm-hmm. i think of this as within the knowledge creation market combining creativity with theoretical insights to yeah. try to change the world yeah. and it it's a continuous building right in using a tool that i believe in yeah that can help us build knowledge and i think that's when you look at my research and i know we're going to get to the book but but I think the book itself represents maybe the back nine of my career. Yeah. And yeah. what I mean by the back nine of my career is the, the front side of my career was about measurement and mediation analysis and using the world as my lab to figure out the whys behind problems. Mm-hmm. I think the back end is the, the scaling aspect and, and right. how we can use insights and not only use insights that are generated, but change the paradigm in in the manner in which we think about doing experimentation. Yeah. And because if we have a mindset of scaling, it's a totally different type of approach yeah. that you want to take as an experimentalist. Yeah. And I didn't I didn't get that until around 2014. Yeah. When I was uh you know growing more and more into scaling and then I I realized something that I hadn't realized before. Yeah. Okay. So we should probably transition. I have questions, but I want to. No, no, it's okay. I want to. I want to pick up these threads as they come up. So what happened? So so tell me a little bit about this transition. You know about like like what's the what? Where do you start to notice your your curiosity shifting and the kinds of questions they're shifting? What are they shifting from towards? You said that's probably absolutely. But let's be clear though. From the start, I always viewed my baseball card experiments as um, a way for me to test economic theory in an environment that I understood. 
uh-huh. in an environment where I could self-fund my work because nobody else was funding field experiments. Back then in the early 90s, it was lab or naturally occurring data. Right. Nobody was running field experiments. So yep. that was my way of generating data. And I was always after test theory, figure out mechanisms mm. and then get published. And an early shtick of mine was people would say, well, why do we need field experiments? And I said, because to generalize your results from the lab to the field, you either have to make some pretty dramatic assumptions or we need to build an empirical bridge. And I always thought an empirical bridge was to slowly build from the lab to the field Mm. and understand theoretically and empirically whether results should generalize. Okay, so that was always part of it. Now, right. 2014 rolls around, and I get these great results from this pre-K program that I started in Chicago Heights. And this is a program that Chicago Heights is a relatively poor community. They reached out to me and said they wanted help. So I said, sure, glad to help you. Um we figured out that the best way for me to help them was in their educational system, their public education. And this, this is a community that has 95% of kids on food stamps, households mm. on food stamps, mm. very poor community. So we end up doing some work with high schoolers, but then we back off and say, we really need to start very early. Mm-hmm. So with Roland Fryer and Steve Levitt, we build a pre-K for three, four and five-year-olds and we open it in 2010. Mm-hmm. 2014 rolls around, we have these great results, like just off the chart results. So I go and start to talk to policymakers. And they start to tell me that my results will never scale. So this was kind of the first slap in the face moment. I mean, I had worked back in the White House where we talked about Energy Star and will Energy Star scale? This is in 2002, 2003. I worked with the EPA when I was at the Council of Economic Advisors. So I talked about scaling and I talked about generalizability, but I had never been confronted with a slap in the face like Professor List, even though you've been doing field experiments for 25 years, what you've produced here isn't scalable. Hmm. So at that moment, I started to step back and say, what is the science behind using science. And at this point, Uber, this is right around the time that Uber called me. And uh, Travis Kalanick called and said, we're interested in interviewing you to be chief economist at Uber. And we're interested in scale and Mm -hmm. growing. And about five years before that, I talked to Jeff Bezos about being chief economist at Amazon. And it was the same thing. At that point, he said two things. One, the next big thing in Amazon is going to be to hire a bunch of economists, and you're going to be the first one. And then we're going to scale you up. What year was this? What year was this? 2010. 2010. So your work was already percolating, and there there was widespread knowledge in tech about your work on scale. Was there Not a on scale? He wanted to bring me in to run field experiments. Oh, it was on the field experimentation. He, okay. he, he wanted to bring me in to be the chief economist. Mm-hmm. And one of my bits of expertise would be field experiments. Yeah. At that time, he didn't say what he said was just we're going to scale this thing up. He wanted because right. their share price was like 10, seven or 10 bucks a share. Yeah. Said, we're going to scale this. that. He didn't he didn't generically say Something like John List, you're going to come in to scale. Because I wouldn't have been known for that at all. I hadn't yeah. been doing anything on scale. All right, right, right. He said two things. One, and when I said scale, I mean scale up the number of economists. So yeah. we're going to hire you as the first, mm. and you're going to report to Jeff Wilkie. Yeah. And um, then we're going to scale a bunch of economists, and mm. you're going to be in charge of all of them. Mm-hmm. And then he said something about the cloud. Uh, he goes, clouds are going to be our next big thing. Yeah. At this point, I didn't know what the heck he was talking about. Cloud, what, what is right, that? Right. I wasn't, that wasn't my language. Anyway, okay. So the, the Chicago Heights Early Childhood Program starts. I get slapped in the face. Um, 
Travis starts talking to me and he did want to talk about scaling, but he also wanted to talk about using field experiments. So all of, all of these offers were all about, we got this guy who, who is a, a University of Chicago economist who can come in and give us economic advice on the one hand, and he's an expert at generating data yeah. to make causal inference on the other. That's right. full stop that, okay? Yeah, yeah. So Chicago Heights happens, Travis, I start thinking about, you know what? I have focused my entire career on using the world to test theory and to test mechanisms and to right. do some causal moderation, but I haven't paid close attention to after you create those pearls, what some, what the Bible would say is uh, the pearls before the swine. Yeah. Um, that I haven't focused on the swine. Right. And right. I haven't focused on implementation and scaling. And I thought if you really want to change the world, let's take a look. Yeah, science you know using science. So is that is that the deal? The 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 economist identifies some causal effect, or they have some sort of literature that they're involved in, and then maybe they become entrepreneurial. But to be entrepreneurial is to necessarily talk about scale. Oh, for sure. But uh, and, and, but a lot of economists might not know that, or a lot of people just kind of have the idea of yeah. something like a like a like a program because they've been studying a program but they don't study the science of making it big to be just as effective. Oh, absolutely. I mean, why would they? Our, right. our models always basically do an efficacy test, yeah. use the best inputs, you know, yeah. give theory its best shot. That's what mm -hmm. Vernon Smith would always say is, give theory its best shot. The problem is, is after we use all the best inputs, like give our program its best shot, yeah. we, we publish it, but we forget to tell everyone that it was an efficacy test. Yeah. And then it's it's dead on arrival most of the time. Right. And right. and then we move on to our next project and we have a big treatment effect. Yeah. So we get in a big journal, yeah. we get more grant funding, mm -hmm. we get more accolades in the New York Times. Yeah. But at the end of the day, you try to scale that thing, you're yeah, dead. So it's not it's 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 effectively I mean, it's not necessarily that it's worthless because somebody else could scale it. But it's a solution it, to the wrong problem. To the wrong problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it, and congratulations. If you want to change the world, that's not how you do business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It yeah. can't be. And, yeah. and, and all of this comes together for me. And I say, you know, I want to start working on the science of using science. And I want to add economics to that problem. Mm. So we then work on that theoretically to start, do mm -hmm. a bunch of empirical work. Yeah. And I say, you know what? It's good. It's it's published in journals and, and I'm doing my thing. Should I move on to the next thing or no? I want to stop there. Sort of like I did with the y-axis. Yeah. I, I stopped and I wanted to take stock and let other people outside the academy know what I've learned. Right. And I thought that it was super important to do it for scaling mm. just because the stakes are so very high. Yeah. And I didn't want four people to read my academic papers. That's 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 great on the one hand, and I don't yeah. want to sell that short, yeah. but I really want to make this bigger. And yeah. that's why I wrote The Voltage Effect. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, okay, so so a counterfactual 20 years ago, uh, The Voltage Effect, someone else writes The Voltage Effect, and you it shows up on your desk. Do you think that, do you think that you could have become like come to the insights and the comprehension of the science of science and of scaling from your book, or is there some set of experiences yeah. over this time? That's not really intellectual, you know, kind of things as much as these like run in a lab or, you know, being at the white house. What, what exactly were the yeah. key pieces of your change? No, that's a great question, Scott. Um, that book was created because of the lived experiences yeah. of my life. Yeah. Um, now, when somebody reads it, I think, like I saw you were reading it with a Guinness, which I appreciated. Yeah. Um, after you read it, you're like, you see all this, you're like, yeah, this is right. Um, this is what we have to do now, A, B, C, D, and E. 
Right. And and then we, we, we've added science to this thing that was always art. Yeah. I, I think those insights, I don't see how I could have produced them without the lived experiences of yeah. all the way back to the baseball card shows uh-huh. and, and how to think about scaling up those insights or what we learned there and how I thought about generalizability and then going to the White House. Right. And then the the work at, you know, with a lot of firms, I mean, between the White House and Uber, you know, worked with Chrysler, United Airlines, Sears, Kmart, a lot of firms in between. And it's not only about sitting in one lab and figuring out what works and why. Yeah. It was looking across these settings and trying to figure out, are there general insights that you could think generically about any idea mm-hmm. that the signature of the idea has to look like this to have a shot? Because right. the book is really about, does your idea have the signature of something that could scale? It's not right. saying it will, because you can have a great idea and have terrible execution and it, it will never scale. But if you have great execution around an idea that doesn't have the signatures, you're equally as dead. Yeah. And, and that happens a lot in business and government. So yeah. to answer your question, I think it really had for me, it had to come from the lived experience and then the theory yeah. to help guide where to look in the data. Yeah. And then the data to kind of confirm. And then you see how I wrote it was a very storytelling because you have to take, as you know, all the economies and the jargon and the, and the math out and, mm-hmm. and tell stories about how people can learn right. from your work. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I want to show you something. So, uh, so this is a, um, you've probably, you may have seen this. This is by, um, William Shockley won the Nobel Prize in 56. He helped start Bell Labs on the statistics of, you know, it's kind of like always funny to read these old papers. The productivity in research labs is, I think, you know, the paper is basically about a person like you, really. It's about these right tail producers of citations, okay? But I actually kind of feel like it's relevant to what we're talking about. So I have two questions but i actually want to talk yeah. first about what we're talking about so yeah. he said he does a pretty cool paper it looks like by the way thanks for pointing oh out yeah it's really interesting i was it's not cool. aware of this paper yeah so uh um he says uh, he basically lists a production function that's what this is right here the productivity of an individual and he's got here like these eight things it doesn't have to be eight things but it's like he lists eight things but it, you know i think he's just illustrative these are basically like you know, uh, it's this multiplicative. It's interesting in a couple yeah. of ways. One is it's just it's a multiplicative production function. It's not additive. And the reason why it's kind of interesting is because in a multiplicative production function, you can be good at seven of these things. And then if you're not good at the, if you can't do, if you can't do anything on the eighth, you don't make anything. Yeah, you got zero. You got zero. And so, link problem. Yeah, yeah. So we could, exactly. It's kind of like an Anna Karenina type of principle, which yeah, is like. The magnetic scaling is too. That's what, so that's what I was wanting to ask you. So the, the first thing is he kind of lists the individual production here. It's like ability to think of a good problem, ability to work on it, recognize a good result, stop and write results, ability to write okay, you know, get constructive criticism. It's like it's all these things, right? Now, I, clearly, you're, you're going to have like really large F, F numbers on these things. I know that. But I, I was also kind of wanting to know what is the scale version of that? Because, you know, the, the production function that you're describing of something that can grow, that, that can move up and be effective, it must be the same idea, right? Uh, Scott, that's great. I, I love that paper. and It's a great point. So early on when I was talking to policymakers, they viewed the scaling problem as a best shot problem or, or as a um, silver bullet problem. Uh So they would say, John, we don't think check will scale because you don't have the silver bullet. Uh And and I would ask them, what is a silver bullet? Uh, Where do I find a dozen of them? Because I would love to purchase some (laughs) because I want to keep, 
creating programs. Right. They said, we really don't know, but, you know, implementation scientists tell us it's, it's fidelity. And what they meant by fidelity is you, you give the people the pink pill in, in, in the trial. And then when you scale it up, you give them the purple pill. Mm-hmm. It's also called program drift in the implementation science literature. But what, what my book argues in my thesis and what the data so far say is that this is really a weakest link problem, exactly as you're uh-huh. saying. It's an Anna Karenina problem. Mm. And, you know, when I, when I read Tolstoy's first line, it was one of the best sentences in the world to me. Yeah. Happy families are all alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Scaling's the same. Yeah. Scalable ideas are all alike. Each unscalable idea is unscalable in its own way. Right. And I think of the book as giving you the five F1, F2, F3, F4, F5. Yeah. And, right, it's like airport security. Your plane's only as secure as the weakest link. Or right, right. Your, your automobile is not going to work if it has a flat tire. Right. And, right. and I think it is the Anna K problem. And, yeah. the, and it's very different than how policymakers usually think about it. Uh-huh. But it's, it's, to me, 100% the Anna K problem. Can, can you give an example of something specific and then uh, of a scalable, an Anna Karana kind of scalable idea so that so reader, listeners can kind of know, yeah, oh, it's yeah, like, absolutely. it's this yeah. kind of version of this. Yeah, and, and let me, uh, and I'll use it within the five vital signs that I talk about in the book. So so think about um, Jonas Salk's work. Mm. So Jonas Salk has this idea that, he wants to vaccinate people for polio. Okay. So he does what any good scientist would do. He tries it on his own kids. That's ah. what I do too. I, <laughs> I try my, many of my experiments on my own kids, right? Yeah, if right. I can try it on other people's kids, then I should be able to do it on my own. Yeah. Okay. I studied methamphetamine and sex work, so they don't let, I, I'd get in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Rules and regulations yeah. against some things. Yeah, there's a different version of it. There's a different version of it. Yeah, I don't think about being the chief economist at Tinder like you do, Scott. (laughs) But we're going to get to that. I think I might have some solutions for you to help. Good. Um, So he tries it on his own kids. It works. And then he tries it on other kids to make sure it's not a false positive. Uh So that's vital sign number one is do you have voltage to begin with? Mm -hmm. He finds that he does. Vital sign number two is figure out the slice of the pie or know your audience right. that your idea can capture. Yeah. Lo and behold, he tries out all kinds of kids. It works for all kids. I see. Great. That's vital sign too. Is that like vital an, sign- should I be thinking of like external validity when I step, when I get into, is that the same kind of idea? One part of external validity is going to different populations of people. Yeah. So, so yes. So a lot of times when people talk about external validity, it's, it worked for this population. Does it yeah. work for another one? Yeah, yeah. That's really vital sign number two. That's what I thought you were saying. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Vital sign number three, it goes from the population of people to the population of situations. Mm. And, and what that's about is were there unique situations under which your idea worked and right. those situations can't be replicated at scale? Yeah. So, so there I talk about is it the chef or the ingredients? In, in Chicago Heights Early Childhood Program, it demands good teachers, yeah. but can I get good teachers at scale? Yeah, yeah. This is literally an example that I teach my students when I talk about the sattva uh, assumption, which is I say, you know, a lot of sattva is like part. It's kind of interesting. A lot of causal inference is like partial equilibrium. And in many ways, it's kind of like what you're talking about is this that the, there's a science that like almost at least kind of like in the potential outcomes tradition that is uh, not necessarily going to be in the, the tables of results, you know, about what will, because if you're like talking about like the inputs would might, you might run out of the inputs. You might run out of high quality teachers. No, no, no hundred percent. I mean, the, you're right. The, there's a lot of intuition, potential outcomes, but Potential outcomes is there's no constraint on the medicine, yeah. right? It has to be inputs of this. Yeah. And here are the potential outcomes on the various inputs. 
Right. What I'm talking about here is you're exactly right. When you scale something, there might be constraints on the number or types or qualities of the inputs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly. not that's not divorced from the potential outcomes model. Yeah, it's exactly. That's exactly. going to a different different section yeah. of the X's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. However you, you want, or the D's, however you want to set up the right. model. Yeah, yeah. Inbins um, and Rubin call it hidden variation in treatment. No, no, you're right. It's the second part of Sutba. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, the second part. Right? It's just a different treatment. That's right. what I call program drift. Yeah. Right? It's a different treatment. Mm-hmm. So, so this third one is, you know, are there unique elements? And within the, um, the let's say, the, the running example, this is where polio and COVID kind of depart because the brilliance behind the, let's say the spread or the scaling of the polio vaccination is that they leveraged the healthcare system right? when, when they did it. And, yeah. you know, when, when people have children, you have a child, get some shots, you bring the child back in six months, more shots, 12 yeah. months, more shots. Yeah. They just put the polio vaccination within that. Mm-hmm. And now it's great. And we've yeah. been able to figure out how to get it in people's arms. Forget about the part that it's become very politicized as well. But but you get the point that, that yeah. the elements of the situation, it worked perfectly for yeah. um, Salk. Right. Now, the fourth one is, and it's funny that you brought up partial equilibrium because the fourth vital sign does talk about general equilibrium. Yeah. It talks about spillover effects. Now, the spillover effects are one part, the first part of Sutva. Yeah. Um, and we had that issue in check. And what, what happened in check was the treatment kids ended up spilling over to the control kids. Yeah. So what I mean by that is if you were a control kid and you live nearby enough treatment kids, it yeah. was like you were in treatment yourself. Yeah, it's like you were treated. Yep. Yeah. And then yeah. now it's called this. We have a paper on this called the social side of human capital formation. Yeah. And we, yeah. we can, we, we have the two, mm-hmm. you know, how cog and non-cog, we have those two channels too. One works through parents and one works through the kids themselves. Yeah. So, so that's one part of spillover. The other part is, is sort of the market-wide spillover, the general equilibrium effects. Mm-hmm. And in the book I talk about at Uber, when, when we rolled out tipping, it worked great for 5% of the drivers. Yeah. But when all the drivers have tipping, the new market equilibrium undid the good stuff of, yeah. that we observed at 5%. Mm-hmm. So now with... Um, with Sulk, he has this in spades because that idea has great spillover, right? Once you get the polio vaccination. Yeah, exactly. Right, 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 right. Um, and then the fifth one's the supply side of scaling. Mm-hmm. And that's does your idea of economies or diseconomies of scale. And what's interesting is that in our literature, we always talk about benefits and costs, et cetera. But very rarely when we do experiments, do we talk about how the supply side will scale. Right. I never see that talked about at all. Right. No, nope. um, we we didn't even do that in government. So in government, what we did is kind of a static benefit cost analysis yeah. of in the Petri dish. What does a BC profile look like? Mm-hmm. We, we didn't even forecast at scale. Yeah. Because you can have a voltage drop just to the supply side. Right. You know, and everyone always talks about voltage drops to the benefit side. So now here is again. We know that medications like the polio vaccination has great supply side principles. Yeah. And the, the true cost is getting it in people's arms. Yeah. But they're coming to get the clinic anyway to get the checkup. Right. Right. So, so that's an idea that it checks all of the boxes. It's scaled brilliantly and it works. That, yeah. that might be a prototype for your listeners to think about. Yeah. 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 You know, it's funny. Um, uh, lots of times I, I feel like our our views of the world are, are kind of like uh, exogenous because we let them be exogenous. You know, it's like we sort of we just struggle to kind of imagine that some of our ideas are chosen that, uh, you know, maybe if we could step back, we could sort of imagine that we don't have to do it this way. And it, and it seems like with scale, it's like you just sort of take for granted that there's this production function that you just think is the only way that you could do this idea. And it it seems like there's lots of different production technologies. I mean, it's like, you know, thinking about Shockley's production function, those eight things, for instance, like if if you're not somebody that, that is uh, able to write up results, 
and you don't, then you can co-author. Yeah, thank you God. You just need the te the team has to be yeah. able to do it. And so um, I was kind of wondering, you know, do you think that entrepreneurs are are able to sort of be flexible to the idea that we don't just have a good idea. We have all these different ways that we scale it and we've just got to also choose these appropriate production functions or do you find that they're like who's 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 able to make those nimble moves and, and, and what are they like and who's the people that, you know, just cannot cannot imagine that there's other ways to do this? Yeah, so I, I think it's a good depiction. You've just depicted, I think, the difference between a good and a bad manager or entrepreneur. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and in my travels, I've met all of the above. Mm -hmm. um, the ones that that I appreciate working with the most are willing to be driven by data and driven by science, mm -hmm. and they don't know all of the answers. Unfortunately, most of the managers already know all the answers. Right. And they don't need data and science. But I do think as data and scientific insights become more available and more valuable, I, I think the, the the other type of manager is going to be an endangered species. Yeah, It's just that they've been able to live for so long yeah. um, be, because nobody's able to take advantage of them. Right, right, right. Um, right. But, but I think as a cost to data and the cost of good data science, they're going down, as we know, yeah. um, becoming more available. And I think that those mistakes are going to be punished uh, much more often and much more severely in the future. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so so the, the, the move, uh, the growth of tech is really interesting because... So when I graduated in 07, this isn't a, this isn't, you know, to anybody, I don't mean this that's listening. I don't mean this in a bad way. I just meant this was my mindset back in 07, that if you didn't get a tenure track job it, and you went into industry, it was kind of like you failed the job market. Yeah. That's like, yeah. you know, everybody is allowed to choose a different interpretation of that. Obviously that's not true, but it's like, there's kind of like, you know, there, there's so many hierarchical beliefs in economics, but when I think about tech, you know, it's like there's a couple of things is, first of all, a lot of tech, you, you hear about the scientists, you know, you hear about the uh, page rank and things like that with Google. But you don't hear about these pioneers, Susan Athey, Hal Varian, Preston McAfee, these guys coming in, men and women coming in uh, and laying down all this micro theory about auctions. It becomes the business model of the entire Internet. And then you've got guys also, pioneers, you're doing it, Bajari's doing it. And so I, I've been thinking to myself, you know, it seems like it's a shift that's happening. And the, the shift is, first of all, the wage compensation in tech is the biggest in the country, you know, for like a, for like a, a minted PhD in just about anything, and including economics. And you have a tremendous amount of positive selection. And so uh, I was just kind of curious, I mean, how in the world, why has this labor market occurred for PhD economists? First of all, is that it, it, do you see this kind of shift happening in the labor markets of PhD economists? And then secondly, it just seems like if you're putting a lot of PhD economists, they're doing high impact research in this area. It's just a matter of time before there starts to be a very, very integrated conversation at the graduate training level of the kinds of research questions that PhD economists are working on. And I just was kind of curious, yeah. what, what are you noticing over the last 20 years that's really changed our, our labor markets and our profession? And what, what is your opinions about what you've seen? Yeah, so, so Scott, that was a lot. Uh, so let yeah. me, and, and, and I agree with 99% of what you said. Uh -huh. Let me, um, <clears throat> let me just give some thoughts about what, what I've seen. So I did admissions and aid here at the University of Chicago for six years. Mm -hmm. And I've been, <clears throat> you know, I, I've been on search committees on like, 
every type of university, University of Central Florida, University of Arizona, University of Maryland, University of Chicago, and I mean search committees, committees that are hiring assistant professors and associates, fulls, et cetera. And I've hired for Lyft and Uber for, yeah. for six years. Okay, so that's my experience. So here's what I've noticed. First of all, what's interesting is when I did admissions and aid, I look back at our data all the way back to 1993 at the University of Chicago, and I looked at our placements. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty stable that it's 50 to 60% of our people every year will go to the academy. Right. The other part will go to Fed banks, uh, investment banks, consultancies, et cetera. Yeah. That's been incredibly stable. And I've asked other universities the, the similar question about what do your trajectories look like? They're similar to us. Yeah. So, so first of all, there is not a big shift. Oh, right now. Even, even now. Okay. Yeah, even now. Even now. Not a big shift. Okay. Now, the shift that I see a little bit is in the past. So first few years at Uber, when I look at the pool of people, and then I look at who we're interviewing at the University of Chicago, mm -hmm. there'll be zero overlap. So what I mean by that right. is we're getting the top minds in our department to interview, and they weren't even applying to my job at Uber. Not even applying. So they weren't even in the pool. Mm. But when you talk about computer scientists, the best ones were going the there rather okay. than to the academy. Right. Okay, so right. That, that's like fact number two, so to speak. Yeah. Now that's beginning to change slowly yeah. to where in this last year, I start to see a little overlap, but still not a lot. Mm -hmm. It's still the case that the top people who are viewed, quote, as the top people in the market. Yeah. They're not applying to the tech jobs, right? And, unless there's some extraordinary circumstance, or just not. Mm -hmm. Now you can ask, why aren't they? Part of the reason is the same reason why I said no to Amazon.com mm -hmm. back in 2010. It's because there's some restrictions on the types of papers you can publish and write about outside of the job, which. That, that's their prerogative, right? That was their choice. It was Jeff Bezos' choice to tell me, you're going to do science here. We're going to pay you a lot of money, but yeah. you can't publish anything. Yeah. So I said no Right. back then. Companies are starting to open up. Yeah. Amazon's one of them that's starting to open up. Lyft and Uber, as you can see, I have a dozen papers yeah. on Rideshare that I think are, are neat papers, and we've learned a lot about the economic science. Mm -hmm. They've opened up. So that's opening, but it's still not uh, enough of an open environment and an environment that I can work on whatever problem I want. That's no. what the academy gives you. I can come in and work on whatever I want to an extent, right? When you're an assistant professor, you still have to try to publish what the market wants in a way, yeah. but, but you get the point. Within that yeah. set, I can work on what I want. Right. Firms are beginning to be open there, no doubt. Mm -hmm. And the big benefit, of course, is a lot of data and the ability to work on questions that would otherwise be difficult. Yeah. So, for example, at Lyft, in, in a few nights, I can have over 2 million observations yeah. to go after a question, and I can do it multi-site. I can do all the stuff in my book in two nights. Mm -hmm. So it, it's all set. Is it scalable? I can check off all the boxes and the voltage effect. Some firms, of course, you can't do that. And sitting in the ivory tower, it might be particularly difficult unless you have a lot of connections. Right. So, so that aspect is a huge benefit. Now, mm. the other side of it, however, is the human capital around universities in yeah. terms of students, undergrads, graduates, colleagues, the ability to teach and stay on the frontier, that's still unprecedented yeah. in, the, in the business world or in mm. government. Um, or in nonprofits, if you, you know, I've worked with all three for a long time, those opportunities in the ability to leverage human capital and partner with human capital mm -hmm. is, is, le is less available in, in those settings. Yeah. So that, that's just a few thoughts. Now, 
are we moving in that direction? Absolutely. Yeah. If we if we continue to populate the top for-profit and uh, non-profit and governmental agencies with top talent and people who can shepherd yeah. good economics, that will draw people. Yeah. The people I get at, at Lyft and I, I did get at Uber were are off the charts. Yeah, in terms of quality. So, yeah, so then the firm has helped, and then I bring in academic partners. A lot of my work involves bringing in an academic, right? And then they end up being co-authors on the work. Yeah, so that's also helping. Mm-hmm. I think as we populate chief economist positions, and every every firm should have a chief economist. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's going to make it more likely that the next generation of great talent views that as a viable option. Yeah. I don't view it right now as a viable option though. Yeah. 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 Maybe, maybe though there is some positive selection disruption in the labor market for people like you, the senior people, you know, like, uh, I know Matt Taddy that used to be at Booth is now at Amazon and you're, you're at, you know, even just thinking about those early pioneers, like, you know, McAfee and, and Athey and Varian, they were always, you know, Athey was a John Bates Clark Award winner. I mean, so there was, there, she didn't go there, you know, first, uh, but she goes there later. And so, uh, do you, do you think that you're watching new opportunities for the for the senior economy? Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's where I think that's where the big impact's gonna gonna happen on on this front that we're talking about because without the good senior economists. I don't think the revolving door is going to work for the top young economists. Right. I don't see a, a, a person who can go to a top 10, top 20 school saying, mm-hmm. you know what? I'm not going to go to Harvard because I'm going to go work at yeah. Amazon. Right. There, there's just not a compensating differential that the yeah. firms will pay. Right. And, and I think actually get surplus themselves yeah. to get that person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I do think it's going to be Scott goes and works for Tinder. Scott mm-hmm. then gets to hire a team of three people. Right. He gets a junior person who he otherwise Tinder would never get without right. him. Right. And then Scott allows that person to publish great stuff. Right. And they, it ends up working. And then maybe later in five, 10, 15 years, the, the, What's happening in computer science now? Of course, the top ones go there right away. That could happen in econ too. I don't. I don't put that out of question just because right. the opportunities are so great. Yeah, but I don't see that happening the other way around. The juniors right. going first. Well, so what's the Anna Karenina principle for the for the ex for the really competent, effective chief economist? I'm not, I'm not asking you to say anything negative about somebody. Just more of the positive statements. What are those? You know, F F I production function well, what's, your, what's your outcome variable you're interested in well what, what do you what what's is your yeah. y, what's your yi well, well so what is it it uh, to change the world i can yeah. have a yi for academic publishing i right. can have a yi for helping the firm i can have a yi for mentorship of young talent i can right. have a yi of helping my colleagues at lift yeah. i can have a yi of bringing back my colleagues here so the chief economist, first of all, has to the chief economist first has to decide who he or she is in in cooperation with a firm that's looking for somebody that wants those things. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, I mean, I think you have to say what do you want to get out of the relationship. Yeah. And for me, it's always been I need to do interesting science yeah. that I can publish and talk about with the world. Right. I have lexicographic preferences. That's it. If yeah. you can't give me that, no reason talking. Right. I, I gave Amazon Pat. I was mm-hmm. on the after I said no to Amazon, yeah. I said, but I can help you in the search. Mm-hmm. And, and Pat comes along and Pat says, I'm willing to do it. Great. Yeah. Pat's a great economist. He does it. He knocks it out of the park at Amazon. Mm-hmm. Um, when they called me at at Uber, it was Jeff Holden, who he was like the number three or four or whatever at, at Amazon. And he ended up going to Uber through Groupon. Mm. And, and TK, uh, Travis Kalanick, wants a chief economist. Jeff said, oh, I remember this really good guy back at Amazon. Yeah. And, but he wouldn't come without publishing. Yeah. And TK said, if he's any good, we'll let him publish. Right, right. That's what happened. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. But let me be clear. I, I should clear up something before your listeners get the wrong viewpoint. You said right away that I'm the chief economist at Lyft. Yeah. Uh, I was. I quit 16 days ago. Oh, oh, okay, okay. And um, I will likely soon be announced as a new chief economist at Walmart. Oh, but, no way. That's amazing. Yeah, but just, yeah so they're, they're just bigger sandbox that I can work on. Oh, and that's I've incredible. I've been in my for six years, so yeah. I um, I want to work on new scientific problems and uh, have new so, – so just to clear up any – I get to break the news. I'm I'm the I'm breaking the news. Incredible. That breaking news. I have the little uh headline thing on the uh Yeah, you can have list is taking his talents to Benton. Yeah, exactly. I'll do that little Look line. About LeBron. That's right. This is the great yeah. Uh that's amazing. Well, uh, uh I could talk to you all night. Uh, it's that's an hour of your time. Well, let me ask you this: how, how do how do I become chief economist at uh, Tender? How does one yeah. how does one become chief economist at, at a place anywhere? Yeah, yeah, I'm glad you asked that. Um, so Tender reached out to me actually a few months ago. Oh, really? Um, yeah, and they, the reason why they did is it was about a year ago, year and a half ago. The reason why they did is because one of my good friends named Udi Milo. Um, is super creative guy. He left Lyft to go be in charge of marketplace at Tinder. So, mm-hmm. so he reached out to me and said, we need your help. They, they do need economics help. Mm-hmm. So I said, look, I, I don't have time, but I ended up lending him one of my people. Mm. And, and that guy has been working with Tinder now for about a year or yeah. 14 or 15 months. Mm-hmm. So I can connect you to him. I won't say his name because I don't want to yeah. get him in trouble with, with yeah. any folks, but I can give you his email address. Yeah. And and the things you've said on Twitter are mostly right. Um, they have a lot of interesting economic issues mm-hmm. and, you know, all the way from pricing to, to product to, it's kind of an interesting objective function because you don't want to clear the market too fast. Yeah. Because then you don't have business. And people don't you, use you it. can't wait right. too long. Right. Uh, because then you uh, you don't have business. Yeah. Um, so it's a, a set of interesting problems. I, I've just never taken them on myself. But yeah. but that's a company that can use a chief economist. So now to ask to answer more generally. You know, what do you do? Do you put a sign up outside your office door saying chief economist for hire? Nobody wants yeah. buyers going to hire. That's you. right. That's so, right. Two-sided matching. Sure. Yeah. 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 So I, I think things like, like, look at Glassdoor. So, uh-huh. so Glassdoor is a great firm that has been trying to fill a chief economist position for months. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a firm that once you find out what they do, that, that's an interesting job now mm. where, where you can help the world, help Glassdoor, and you can learn something scientifically mm-hmm. uh, that you can write about. So so there it feels like you contact them and you say, look, I, I saw that you're interested in a chief economist. Here, Here's a deal for me. Yeah. Because, Scott, you and I have a constraint. We can only work a day a week yeah. outside of our job because we want right. to be academics. I'm an yeah. academic at heart just like you are. Yeah. So, so it has to be one of these – a special arrangement mm-hmm. where that's your consulting day. Right. And in my consulting day, I want to spend it in doing science within a firm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then that's, and then you have to work it out. You know, what yeah. can my group look like? What kinds of questions should I answer? Right. You know, and it's a, it's part internal consulting and it's part external consulting. Right. And then right. that's what you do as a, as a position. Now to me, I think the people like yourself, who are knocking it out of the park in the academy and you can knock it out of the park in this other area, mm-hmm. I think you should do it because these two are compliments and you're going to yeah. be better at both mm-hmm. in the end of the day. And I think as we move people like yourself into these dual roles, it's just going to open up more opportunities Yeah, because yeah. firms are going to realize the rents that they're getting from you. And it's non-trivial. If you go to the right firm, if you have the right match mm-hmm. and, um, and that's something that, of course, add a little bit of insights from economics and then bring out some great, great academic papers, which you can yeah. write. Right. That's a win. Yeah. I like that. Win yeah, win. me too. Me too. Well, um, I'm going to keep, uh, that's the only firm 
it's the only firm I'm in. Well, the the match. No, come on, uh, you're you're the, the match company. Uh, no, come on, Glassdoor, you'd knock it out of the park. You, well, you'd I'm knock just, it out of the park anywhere where you can be a data scientist. Yeah, and true. Interested in causal mm-hmm. inference. Yeah, yeah. I, I just don't, love, don't just say just because you're interested in, yeah. in these types of things. I mean, yeah. your your tools are very broad, and you're yeah, good. yeah, yeah. I I I I have spent my career studying uh, uh, two sided matching platforms and. And uh, and sex, sex, and uh, and uh, and internet mediated sex work, and so it's kind of like uh, you know I, I just love love thinking about markets for intimacy and and connection and friendship and romance, but yeah, yeah. but well, anyway, me, if I was the CEO of Tinder and you told me that what you just said, yeah. I would say you're the last guy I want to hire. Oh really? All right. Well, then, race. Why would I, I want to cut this in, in Why would I want to bring in a guy that's into sex? Really? And, okay. and, and and maybe illegal or legal sex, whatever yeah. sex workers, mm-hmm. etc. My platform is about finding love. Sure. And about yeah. finding matches. It's mm-hmm. not about finding sex. Yeah. So I think I have to go in the yard like match.com well, or okay, future, <laughs> whatever these programs are called. Yeah. Like, so no. don't lead with that, Scott. Don't lead with that. All right, fine. I'm gonna race it. Uh, I definitely will. I'll, I'll lead that. I'll lead with that at Glassdoor, and then uh, <laughs> find something else for. No. <laughs> All right. Well, it's been really a pleasure, John, to talk to you. And just so that everybody knows, um, this is John's new book. Oops, where is it? The Voltage Effect: How to Make Good Ideas Great and Great Ideas Scale. It just came out. It's uh, doing really well. I uh, checked it at the Amazon sales rankings. It's doing really well, and there's lots of buzz around it. And so uh, it seems like it's a book for for uh, everybody, not just uh, – it's not just an, a book for economists. It's really more of a general business, general ideas kind of book. And so uh, good, good luck with it, and I, uh, uh, thanks so much for letting me interview you. Thanks so much for having me, Scott. It was great chatting. Okay.